the pressure for women to succeed in roles that are traditionally or have been held by men is immense. And so when male directors, for instance, in commercial cinema or nonfiction, your films fail, you'd still have financiers queuing up to give you another opportunity. For a woman, I'm not sure if you can say the same. And sometimes, you know, even though you give your best, might not create the best product, right? And that freedom needs to exist because otherwise we won't experiment. So for any original vision or thought, it's really uh, the freedom to fail and to be given another opportunity. Rintu Thomas is a documentary filmmaker and director-producer. She is the co-founder of Black Ticket Films and her documentary, Writing with Fire, was the first Indian feature to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. It revolves around the Dalit women journalists who lead the newspaper Khabar Lahariya as they shift from 14 years of print to digital journalism using smartphones. That bit about not having the freedom to fail. That really got me in the feels. You know, Christina, uh, comedy, the act of making someone laugh live is an act of hope and an act of simultaneous failure. And I have noticed that the penalty and the sort of punishment for failing is almost infinitely higher for women and women comedians whenever we go into practicing in the business of failure. Like I know that, you know, one woman is not funny and I use uh, air quotes. You know, if one woman comedian is not funny, then everyone will jump on, you know, the entire gender and be like, yeah, well, you know, actually women comics are only not funny. And I find it so strange because this seems to be something that they've specially reserved for women in comedy. You will never hear them go after one woman who's singing badly and then you'll never hear them go after her and be like, but actually all women are terrible singers. And I think it's because the domain of singing has conventionally had a female space. And so it's less threatening to anybody when you are failing in it. But with comedy which is still conventionally a very, very male-dominated space, is that the moment a woman tries and fails, she deserves all the punishment in the world. She deserves, you know, all the punishment for daring to step out of line or to think that she can do something that conventionally men do. And, you know, it is so discouraging when your failure is always punished so severely every single time that it reduces your desire to get up the next time and try again. So when Rintu spoke about this, it, it actually like, it really struck a nerve. I'm sorry, I've g- gone off on this. No, but you know, I think that your insight here really resonates with hers because you are literally up there on stage, putting yourself up there. And the amount of backlash that you can get as someone doing that is severe. And when I hear you talk about it, it really resonates with what amount of bravery it takes to go up there and do that. Bravery or foolishness, Christina? <laughs> Aren't they the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> See, we're, we're, now we're finally on the same page, Christina. Two seasons into the show, <laughs> you and I, we're on the same bravery page. Bravery <laughs> and foolishness. When you are the only one doing what you are doing, especially if you are the only woman or fill in the identity there. It means that there's a lot less margin for error because it feels like the door could close behind you. And I think that that's something that 
Rintu has expressed very beautifully. She is also a great hero of mine. I love her work and have found it inspiring for a very long time. So I'm thrilled to have her as a guest on the podcast. Rintu, we are so excited to have you here today to talk a bit about your work and representation of women on screen and all the wonderful things you've done. We are such a fan of Writing with Fire as well. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me and letting me talk. I'm pretty sure I'm not as amazing as you guys are when it comes to talking uh, and make, keeping it exciting, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start off a bit? We'd love to hear a bit more about how you started on this path and how you started Black Ticket. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I went to film school having no idea about what I was going to do there. I had this vague idea of I want to do something in the arts, wanted to write. And my parents had already given up on me when I chose to study commerce without math in my high school. They were just like, okay, this is this, you know, big career uh, from a very middle class service doing family. They were just like, okay, whatever you want to do is fine. But my mom's an English teacher. And so she expected me to, you know, study and I, I had a natural interest towards English literature. So I went to Lady Sriram College, studied, loved it, studying literature. So uh, when I went to film school, I was just like, yeah, let's just figure it out. Let's see what happens and fell in love with the visual medium. And uh, right after film school, I decided to freelance and see, figure out the industry. Do I want to go into Bombay? Do I want to stay in Delhi? Like the classic choice that you have to make. And I interned with this filmmaker who gave me my first assignment, loved the research that I did. And I was going to direct my first film, which and I was adequately nervous and excited. But a day before we were supposed to head out for a shoot, she told me that I'm was going to be replaced with a male director because the all-male technical crew felt that a young woman director might not be capable of pulling this through. And I think that was a very important moment of reckoning, of wanting to, you know, this conversation with myself of what do I want to do really? So I decided not only do I want to direct, I also want to produce because the producer who has the rights to both production and distribution, we talk about films, that's a very critical role. And so in 2009, when my partner Sushmit and I, we started Black Ticket Films as a, a non-fiction creative agency, one of the things that was very critical for us was to talk about how women reclaim spaces, both in the their representation on screen as characters, but also off screen as crew, as creators. And that really, you know, amongst many things that we wanted to do, that has stayed on. And that really took off as a journey for us in 2009. It was wild because back then nonfiction <laughs> was not, you know, you didn't have OTTs. Digital was just still finding its way. The word viral was still just restricted to this field of science. Everything was still very organic. To really create a company bottoms up as two young people <laughs> pitching ideas constantly and constantly being asked, who's your boss? I mean, I was 22 at that time. So I think people not believing in you also has a sense of power. It doesn't feel powerful at that time. But in retrospect, I think I'm so glad I took the beating right in the beginning so that it was just like, I have nothing to lose. Let me just give myself one year and see where it goes. And very slowly, the company grew and we would do commission work and also do our own independent work. So uh, we've been in the space of creating independent nonfiction, but shorts for the past 
13 years. But in 2016 is when we got to know about the story of an all-women-led newsroom in India. And when we followed that, we figured, wow, this could be a long-term story. And that's how the first feature came about. And we called it Writing with Fire. That's wonderful. So taking off from Writing with Fire... What is the story about for our listeners who have not seen the film yet? And dear listener, if you have not seen the film yet, we really encourage you to check it out. It's a brilliant film. So for those who are now racing to go see it, but haven't seen it yet, what is the story about? Oh my God, the log line. (laughs) 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 This is the story of uh, India's only newspaper that's run entirely by women. And it's a newsroom led by women who are considered belonging to marginalized communities. And uh, the fact that the newspaper was transitioning from print, 14 years of print, to digital in an environment of mainstream media, even mainstream media not understanding how to, you know, make that pivot. The fact that most of whom were not very lettered, most of whom had never touched a smartphone in their entire lives, were making this transition to really increase the power that they had of their own newsmaking. Then the story travels with them for five years as they grow their organization. But it's really the intimate story of three of those women, uh, their personal and professional lives. And in essence, I think it's the story of women who pulled their chair to a table and said, my time is here. So we just follow them over five years and the film just grows from there. Wow. And we should also say that you were nominated for the Oscar for it. Sorry, I wasn't talking too much. You know, the thing is, Rintu, at the beginning you said where, first of all, how was this conversation where they all decided that they didn't want you as a director? I was like, who are these men? And how are they getting together to friggin' bully a 22-year-old to be like, I guess I've decided I'm not going to listen to her. So let's get a man on board. Scum. Scum. But you know, like, the toughest thing, the biggest heartbreak, Aditi, is when the, the director was a woman. And that's what I think is the toughest it's the most crushing when that happens. And so it also stirred in me, I think, uh, a kind of thought of what kind of a woman woman leader, quote unquote, do I want to become? I would say, okay, you know what, because we have to, everyone has to shake hands with the patriarchy in some way or the other in order to just survive as a woman today. So maybe, you know, it sort of depresses me to think about how disenfranchised your woman director felt as a leader, that she was worried about being able to sort of, you know, mentor or have a younger woman on the project. And I mean, the fact is that you decided to make black ticket films. And then you you basically dragged a seat to the table and said, this is my time. And then, you know, the film that sort of got you the Oscar, it got you the Oscar. Um, <laughs> For the purposes of this podcast. Of this show. Yeah, yeah. I love this space right now. <laughs> and and that too was the story of these women who dragged their chairs to the table and said, this is our table, this is our time. And how do you see yourself carrying it forward? And is it too soon to ask that question? Like, to be like, oh, so now what have you done? Like, then I'll empower the rest of humanity. 
<laughs> I think the fact that we all exist in this shape and form and volume at which we do is a part of getting somewhere. I think uh, initially when, especially in, in commission projects where it's in front of clients and you do these meetings, boardrooms, I could feel that there was less trust in, in when I spoke vis-a-vis when my colleague who was a co-founder of the company when he spoke and so subtle that you can't call it out but I didn't back off because I was just like this is the only stuff I've got this is the only job I know how to do so I might as I mean I don't really care if you're going to give me a tougher time fine but I'm going to do it anyway and that kind of confidence is not it's not always there. You need to surround yourself with people who are going to be like, you've got this. And I think I was very fortunate to have built a team around me, to have friends, to have colleagues who just like, you know, you've got this, you can do this. And in many ways, I think empowerment can never be a destination. It's an everyday journey. And it's the everyday negotiation of it. And once you figure what that is, it's kind of easier to negotiate. It's like playing cards, right? Sometimes you you deal with a heavy hand. Sometimes you just know when to just pull back a little. Sometimes you just fold and leave for the uh, storm to pass and come back with a different strategy. It's a bit of everything. And when I was with the women at Caballeria, when each of them walked into a village. A lot of times villages that are completely cut off from like what we call as media dark villages, cut off from the interest of mainstream media. The way people would just be like, you know, please tell my story. I'm so glad you're here. There's no water in our well. There's no electricity. And that trust and the fact that here is a community that has not seen a woman in position of authority, definitely not in the space of media. And they're able to imagine a different possibility because this journalist exists and she's walked into the village. I think that is transformation that I saw firsthand, which is very rare. You don't don't really see tangible change. And the fact that these young men, older men and women and boys and girls could really imagine another possibility with a woman, I think that is phenomenal. That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I remember when watching the film, I was always so struck by how brave they appeared. That's something that really came across. Is bravery a choice? In a, at <laughs> least as an Indian woman, Rintu? Is it a choice? Is it a... I think courage, bravery of different contours. I just feel like we shouldn't be asked to be so brave. And it shouldn't be this way. And... In many ways, it's so hard to find your voice and put it out there. And yet at the same time, it's kind of easy also to just push back every time and rebel and be uh, loud about it. It's so much harder when you walk into a space and you know you're not welcome. You know you're going to be mansplained. You know you go back home and it's not going to be easy. You know, no one's going to like pat your back and say, oh my God, you cracked this case. That's not going to happen. And yet you show up the next day. And the day after that, and the day after that, because if you don't, then who will? And that kind of everyday bravery of just listening to yourself and going, okay, I'm just going to do it irrespective of whether someone believes in me or not, is super hard for any woman, any part of the world, and definitely where we were and the regions that Caballeria works in. 
And it goes back, ties back to the community and the sisterhood that they have. They come back and share their experiences in these monthly meetings and say, this happened and that happened, where, you know, sometimes they laughingly chastise each other and say, oh, and you stayed quiet. Or just be like, you need a better strategy. <laughs> so, so it really is. And, and to your question, I, I don't know. I don't know if we need to be so brave to just exist and to dream and to be, you know, that is bloody, um, to me, it's just like, why? You mentioned about the freedom to fail. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think like as a comedian, the job of a comedian is to fail, right? I mean, it's literally in the inherent DNA. You crack a joke, it doesn't work, you crack another one. And the penalty of failure is so stupidly high when you're a woman. And I, I know that you've reflected something very similar. May you please elucidate on that, the freedom to fail. It's so kind. May you please elucidate. (laughs) (laughs) Here's your Oscar. Um, Listen, honestly, can't believe we have Rintu Thomas Oscar winner on our podcast. Oscar winner. (laughs) I'm only promoting this show like this. um, I think it's just unbearable weight that we carry. And the pressure is both external and internal. So when you talk about filmmaking... um, maybe a decade back when I was starting off, there were very fewer women in positions of leadership or power. It was mainly a very male-dominated space. And now that has changed. You see more women in writers' rooms, you see more cinematographers, sound designers, more like technical roles, uh, which are traditionally understood as male. But the pace of change has been glacial. And the stereotypes have, uh, in many ways, modernized themselves. So the pressure for women to succeed in roles that are traditionally or have been held by men is immense. And so when male directors, for instance, in commercial cinema or in nonfiction, your films fail, you'd still have financiers queuing up to give you another opportunity For a woman, I'm not sure if you can say the same. And sometimes, you know, even though you give your best, you just might not create the best product, right? And that freedom needs to exist because otherwise we won't experiment. So for any original vision or thought, it's really uh, the freedom to fail and to be given another opportunity. And then when you reflect it on the other personal side of things, where women are also caregivers, primary roles, la, la, la. so when you step out to work in, in most families, even today, you're kind of taking away the time that you have for family and putting it elsewhere. And so if you've done that barter, then you better succeed there because you're not doing a good job then either ways. And that guilt and that pressure, I, I see so many of my female colleagues coming to work with that pressure. These are things to actually reflect on. Is it even possible to cut that string off and say, it's okay, I'm going to fail and let me see what happens. But I don't know if I am ready to be in that space of failing because the pressure is so high. They're like, Rintu, bitiya, to you get nominated for an Oscar ya to inki shadi karwa do. <laughs> Those are that the is... two options almost immediately. Okay, Oscar ne nominate to cute kya hua hi kya. So fa- frankly, Rintu, you've ruined it for the rest of us women. I, um, I'm guilty as charged, but my father still, <laughs> till the, the nomination came a year before that. I love my father very much, but he till until then he used to say, MBA to kari lete. 
<laughs> I, I love doing that shit. Lots of times the women will be like, no, I was just mumbling mm. something. I was like, bolna yaar, kya hai? Vaise bhi everyone is mostly mumbling nonsense only. If you mumble yours louder, what difference will it make? Do you know, and I think that that's, at just that most basic level, I think that's such a powerful thing you're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's shaking it up, like, but nicely, like you said. Hey, one sec. I think I heard something. Did you? <laughs> what she said, what she said, yeah. Ari, she's so crazy, na? How she gives these ideas, I tell you, this girl. <laughs> Just... Tell me a little bit about how women's relationships are represented in the film, both friendships and working relationships. And what what do you bring to that with your specific gaze? How are women's relationships usually represented in film? And what was it that you were trying to bring to that with Writing With Fire? That's a huge area of interest for me personally. Growing up, especially when in university days, when you're exposed to larger uh, you know, forms of cinema and art, a lot of times what I felt was who I am and the kind of friendships and relationships that I have with women around me, I never see that on screen. And I think the popular culture imagination of women and their friendships is usually mediated through a male gaze. It's men writing for women and therefore it's how they imagine and not really experience or perceive. And that voice was for a really long time missing. And uh, so in nonfiction, unless you go carefully looking for things, they don't really appear. You're not creating scenarios, they exist. And you have to consciously look for things that excite you. And in all our films, there's a very conscious gaze of how women play out their relationships. And in my own life, I, my closest friends are either 10 years or 15 years older to me or 10 years younger to me. And so that complexity is not represented. So how do I do that? So, you know, when I, recently I made a shot, it's called Tara and Basanti, about two 60-year-olds who train women as rural represent, elected representatives in, in Uttarakhand. And the story was about the women they train. But when we went and started filming, I was just like, who are these kick-ass women? Because there's also a certain amount of ageism in ourselves where we're like, oh, young women changing the world and have the energy. But they're these 60-year-olds who are the ones raising everybody. They had an amazing sense of humor. They had so much energy. Then all of my entire crew put together, they were just like raring to go. So we on the side just created like a little piece on them. And it's one of my favorite uh, films. And it is about women and their friendships and how we constantly lift each other up. And in a language that we find familiar. And that's what I found in the very first rushes of Writing With Fire that we shot with the reporting team of Khabar Lahiriya, uh, where we got invited to a meeting. It's one of the initial scenes in the film where they were all sitting together in a circle and there's a pitch being made about we need to pivot to digital and there's just like some people are excited some are nervous some are just like this isn't this is madness we've just figured how to do this in print are you kidding me <laughs> like you know transitioning to digital and we want to become a digital force <laughs> but what I saw was this very strong sense of sisterhood of we've got this we'll get there together so that was the kind of language being uh, spoken. And uh, I would say the four years of spending with the women has been really 
I think, first-hand experience of what that sisterhood could look like. And women as bosses, you know, just because you're women doesn't mean you're going to be like easy on each other. It's a very professional environment. There are timelines. People are going to be fired. There are consequences. But it's really about who's the slowest one in the group and what do I need to lift her up? A lot of the film spends its time in exploring these relationships. These are subtle touches, but I think that's what makes the film more beautiful and and more warm. Mm, I really do think so. I really do think so. And I remember those scenes where they are still holding one another really to account. You know, when one of the characters is really struggling with figuring out the digital transition, they do, you know, hold her feet to the proverbial fire But, you know, they're doing it in this kind, like, we will all get through this together. We will all do it together, which I loved. And, you know, when we look at some of the characters in the film, like Sunita and Mira, they're navigating these trade-offs for working. These things that we, Aditi and I learned this term through Shreyana Bhattacharya, which is this hidden tax of choice, which means because they're choosing to work at the newspaper, and pouring their time into that and their energy, there's other ways that society is taxing them or giving them guilt, you know, Mm -hmm. giving them emotional tax for doing this work and spending this energy. Can you tell us a bit about these characters and how they navigate this, what society and culture and family is putting on them for making this choice to be journalists? I think what Mira and Sunita are negotiating for is independence of thought and the choice to just be who they can be, when they're deeply aware that I'm, I can do this. A, getting to that point mostly is very hard because the way we are brought up as women, there's so much self-doubt, there's so much imposter syndrome. It's all internalized and from very early on. To step away from it and say, I am capable of better, I deserve better. And journalism has been the mythical as I'd say, you know, the Thor's weapon of choice for them. <laughs> it's it's really it's really journalism because it's about standing up for yourself and others. But in their personal lives, both of them have such different styles, and that's what we really wanted to explore because negotiation can have so many hues and your personality can be explored so beautifully when that happens. With Mira, she's gentle, she's quiet. There is this internal, you know, uh, she's a powerhouse, she's confident, and uh, she has a very clear idea of what she wants for her daughters, for her sisters. So she was married very, very young, as a 14-year-old, but her sisters, one of them, I think, is now 27, 28, and studying her engineering and not married. So within her own lifetime, she's managed to change what marriageable age looks like within one family. And you just, you know, expand it to a literal community, to a society. And the tax of it is guilt. And am I doing enough? Am I still, am I being a good mother? You know, those sequences where the kids are not doing enough in school. The kids are like, why don't you just spend a little more time with me, tie my hair. And to explore that was very, very important because so resonant with women everywhere. Every The films travel to almost every part of the world. And so, and women respond more strongly because there's like, that stuff happens with me. 
I have a completely different context and reality and it's not as adverse as I see on screen, but it's the same struggle. And why should it be that way? With Sunita, it's different because she's more like a pataka. She's got more energy. She's much younger, not a lot, but she's definitely younger. And her way of negotiation is to use her words and be confident about what she wants. And yet there is a dichotomy. She wants to be independent and free and marry a man of her choice or not marry or marry when she wants to. But there's this huge pressure from family, the responsibility to protect the family honor, which again, we all internalize and we carry. So it took four years for those layers to be unraveled for us to very slowly explore and to see the kind of choices both of them made in their lives. And I think um, we all have many, many lessons to learn from those negotiations. And sometimes you come back home and you feel like everything's great and it's been a good day. Your husband's supportive, kids are great, father's supportive. And some days you come back and you just feel like, why am I doing this? What's the point? And the the energy to wake up next day and say, I'm going to do this all over again, irrespective of what the price is, that bravery is very attractive. And that fight with self-doubt is so strong and so powerful. I think we wanted to just imbue the film with that energy. So it doesn't matter In our heads, it didn't matter whether the newspaper succeeded in becoming a digital force. The fact that she tried and she pushed and she spoke uh, was so much more important. And of course, it's an icing on the cake that they have become uh, what they have. I mean, you telling stories of people telling stories, I think is the most powerful thing in the world. And you won an Oscar for it. Thank you so much for being with us. I have looked up to your work, honestly. I haven't told you this, but when I started a production company in Delhi, I would constantly look at Black Ticket for inspiration. You know, it was one of my primary sources of inspiration. So thank you so much for being you and for doing what you do. It's incredible. That's touched me. Thank you so much. And wow, Um, I think... Anything that we all do, if it truly speaks to one other human being, our job is done. And I love the serendipity and the circle of life where, you know, you met somebody and you've seen someone's work and you come together and you're just jamming, having a nice conversation. Thank you for making it happen. It was just such a joy. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search for Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Women in Labor is made by executive producers Christina McGillivray, Aditi Mittal, and Laura Quinn. Head of production, Mae Thomas. Senior producer, Divita Oberoi. Chief of staff, Priya Kapoor. Marketing director, Manya Sachdeva. American Center Team, Joy King, Korva Jassy, Minjan Bay, and Radhika Sangar. Junior Producer, Niket Nake. Junior Editor, Yash Hirve. Mix Engineer, Kartik Kulkarni. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi. The opinions, findings, and conclusions are those of women in labor 
and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State.